0: Welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for February 22, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. The main front page story is entitled Central Springs FFA in Full Swing After Raising $400,000. The Central Springs Ag Ed Boosters, got the green light to start raising money to start a new Future Farmers of America chapter last June. Just seven months later, they reached their $400,000 goal, and the students were able to start at the beginning of the school year. It's just exciting, said fundraiser Sarah Tweeten. To raise that amount of money in such a short period of time, I think really shows how excited the community is to have a program like this. They literally put their money where their mouth is. A student from a neighboring district was running for FFA state office in 2020 when she visited a Central Springs school board meeting to talk about FFA. Central Springs has never had an FFA program, and Tweeton believes Nora Springs and North Central, which combined to create Central Springs, hadn't had programs since at least the 1970s. Tweeten said, before you knew it, the meetings were packed to talk about FFA. The school board eventually gave permission for the boosters to start fundraising. The $400,000 will cover the chapter's expenses for the next five years. The board agreed for the district to take over the chapter after those years expire. Agriculture is one of the main employers in the area, so we recognize the immediate need to introduce students to career pathways available in the industry. I was a past ag student and it fueled my interest in continuing my education in an agricultural field and selecting the ag finance career I have today, said Jessica Lutz, co-director and founding member of CS Ag Boosters in a release. The Ag Ed curriculum has been in place for one full semester. When fully integrated, the program will cover topics ranging from animal and plant science to ag technology and agribusiness. The FFA chapter, officially chartered in September, allows students to explore personal growth opportunities through supervised agricultural experience projects, career development events, leadership development events, and community service. There are currently 51 students in the Central Springs Ag program. Each of them are automatically an FFA member as well. Ag teacher Derek Straub now integrates the FFA curriculum with his normal Ag curriculum. Aubrey Heft, a junior, is believed to be the only member of the chapter who has experience with FFA, She moved in the district from Charles City, where she was involved in FFA through ninth grade. Hoft has said there's been a curve in figuring out how everything should work. No one has ever been part of FFA, so it's really a learning experience right now. We're trying to learn all the different kinks of it, she said. She said FFA is a huge organization with something for everyone. It brings a lot of different things to the table for all personalities, she said, for me, I really like the communication and leadership aspects of it. Senior Taylor Brown and Heidi Howe said they've been trying to get chap- a chapter started since they were freshmen. Brown, whose father farms near Nora Springs, said she shows cattle and so she definitely wanted to get a chapter started. Howe said her favorite thing so far was the National Convention. Tweeten, who went to and graduated from the Manley campus, said the boosters decided to ask businesses for donations before going to individuals. They believed individuals would be more likely to donate if they already had the wheels moving. We kind of broke out of three different groups, she said. We had our communications people that would put out press releases and letters, things like that. We had a group that was targeting the message to businesses and then to individuals. The donated funds will be used for curriculum, lab supplies, a portion of Strave's salary, jackets, convention and competition trips, and hands-on lessons. Hoft said she's glad so many students are involved. FFA is such a crazy organization. It offers an endless amount of opportunities and you don't have to come from an ag background. Also on the front page. An article entitled, Hearing on Removing School Books Leads to Testy Exchange. A hearing Monday on Iowa School District's processes for reviewing and removing school library books and materials some parents and community members deem obscene devolved into testy exchanges between Democrats and Republicans. Iowa parents, many activists with the conservative group Moms for Liberty, told state lawmakers during a February 6 hearing that there should be more restrictions and parental permission required for school books they find obscene and divisive. Parents read messages, passages containing profanity, descriptions, and illustrations of sex, sexual abuse, and other content they said were not suitable to be in a school library. Representative Brooke Bowden, a Republican from Indianola and chair of the Government Oversight Committee, said parents who had gone through the book review process with their schools were asked to speak before the committee Monday about their experience before hearing later from superintendents and school board presidents from the Carlisle, Carroll, Johnston, Urbandale, Waukee, and West Des Moines districts who deal with the review processes. This is not a subcommittee on a bill legislating whether these books should be in schools, Bowdoin said in a statement to the Gazette. If it was, all members of the public on all sides of the issue would be welcome to come and share their thoughts on the legislation. This is a hearing meant to help us learn more about the book review process. The parents who are in support of these books in schools do not have any experience with the book review process to discuss before the committee. Republican lawmakers questioned school officials about their review processes. The Waukee School District pulled the book Gender Queer off its library shelves after parents complained that the books had exposed their students to inappropriate content. However, a 10-person recommendation committee in Carlisle unanimously recommended keeping the book Gender Queer in the high school library. The committee said the book's content provides a perspective that is relevant to today's teens and has an educational and social-emotional component for students interested or needing information on the topics in this book. Republican lawmakers, however, questioned the literary and educational value of books like Gender Queer that contain sexually graphic images. Bowden asked school officials in Carlisle, which chose not to pull the book from its high school library shelves, whether a student would be allowed to wear a t-shirt with images from the book depicting sexual acts. While a student would not be able to wear such a t-shirt, school officials said just one passage or set of images is not sufficient for a book to be considered obscene. Under state law, a book must contain obscene material when taken as a whole, and lack serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value. There is also an exception for the use of appropriate material for educational purposes in schools and public libraries. I don't see how a book could be removed using the standards you've discussed here, Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said. And so that's the concern I have and something I think we need to take a hard look at. It seems to me... There are probably mountains of books that could have literary value and connect to students without having some of the graphic images like we see in Gender Queer and some of these other books. Representative Sean Banewski, a Democrat from Des Moines, remarked there are graphic images in the Bible that if we put them in comic book form would not be appropriate on a t-shirt. And as a devout Catholic, I don't want the Bible banned from our public schools, Banewski said. The remark elicited a sharp rebuke from Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilton, to which Bagnuski chuckled. You can laugh all you like, but the hubris that's oozing, in my opinion, from your statement is speaking for itself, Kaufman said. Those of us that are here today are here as concerned parents, and to just make light of that and continue to grin at people that have serious concerns about the materials I think speaks more about you than this committee. Earlier Monday, several parents and some students and educators spoke against the proposals in a special hearing held by Democrats. Rebecca Shures, a junior at Carlyle High School, said that gender Queer provided an honest and open account by the author that has helped students at her school that are questioning their gender identity or want to better understand the fluid world of gender identity and the many different avenues and nuances of identifying as non-binary. In cases where school officials choose to retain the book, parents are afforded the option to request their child not be allowed to view or check out the material. And finally, the third article on the front page is entitled Osage's School Nurse Cares for 1,000 Students while teaching a CNA class. Christy Ashenbrenner is a school nurse, but she does not hand out lollipops. When a child's knee is mended, the most they can expect are fruits and vegetables. Ashenbrenner has been at Osage Community School District for six years, serving as teacher in the CNA program. Before that, she taught in the nursing program at North Iowa Area Community College for 12 years. She became interested in education because of her earliest experience as a nurse, where she saw all of the highs and lows of the profession while working in the intensive care unit at St. Mary's campus in Rochester. She saw life and death. Suffering could not always tell the difference between young and old. With a love of science and healthcare, care, Aschenbrenner graduated from Allen College in Waterloo in 1999, her mother's alma mater. Her mother was also a nurse, and her father was a high school math instructor. She ended up combining the two professions. I always looked up to her, Ashton Brenner said of her mother. I thought what she did was admirable. Ashton Brenner loved the variety of experiences and possibilities in nursing, from staying bedside to the legal system, from school nursing to public health to advanced practice. It never gets boring, she said. For her first three years of college at Northwest Missouri State University, Brenner was a biology major. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I always thought about nursing, she said. Then I was in a major car accident. I was in the ER and I thought I could do it just as good, if not better. The crash involved multiple vehicles, including a semi-truck. It was an eye-opener in many ways. It was this turn of events that led her to eventually work in Rochester's ICU. Her duties involved the recovery of patients with vital organ transplants. Great staff, great surgeons, she said. That patient population is very interesting because they're so sick. They complete the surgery, they get the heart or lung transplant, and then we get to see a whole new life. Patients would often go from terminally ill to a new beginning. You're there at people's worst times, and you can be there at their best times. We might have expected for the patient to pass on, but to talk to the family about it, you still feel it for them. As part of the education committee at St. Mary's, Ashen Brenner did move on. She lived with her family in Osage, commuting to work work in Rochester, which made 12-hour shifts more difficult, flipping from days to nights. Eventually, she felt it was time to fall in love again with teaching, enter NIACC. At NIACC, during the academic school year, for two days a week, she worked with patients who graduated from the ICU after cardiac surgery. Ashenbrenner described it as a different world than Rochester, one with a better commute. While teaching college students, she could not assume they knew everything they needed to know. She had to start with the basics of the cardiac cycle, systolic and diastolic. They were still learning basic anatomy and physiology. As the concepts became more complex, the students grew under her guidance. She loved watching students grasp complexity. What she taught could change people's lives. She learned that in Rochester. It's so satisfying as an educator to be part of that process, Brenner said. She said she enjoyed her role in Mason City, but as her own children began growing older, she needed more time to spend with them. That was when the opportunity to work in Osage presented itself. In some ways, high school students have even more responsibilities and distractions than those in college, according to Ashenbrenner. Brenner. She sees that in Osage's CNA program, where she teaches two classes, and she appreciates the resources provided to assist future nurses as they navigate class and extracurricular activities. Ashenbrenner starts her mornings at Lincoln Elementary School. She is the only RN serving the district, and she turns her attention to those who need her attention at the moment. A health associate helps as well. They have almost 1,000 students to care for. On the wall behind her in the middle school office are jars of bandages and gauze. That day, a student stops during lunchtime to ask for a Tylenol. Ashenbrenner taps a pill onto the lid and hands it to him before he goes on his way. Interacting with high schoolers is much different than caring for younger students. It is fun, Ashenbrenner said, of children who show her their sore fingers and skinned knees. They're excited to see you in the hallway, and they want to tell you about their day. Unfortunately, she does not hand out lollipops. We try to stay away from sugar and candy and sugary drinks, Aschenbrenner said. There are no lollipops, but I'd be more than happy to share fruits and vegetables. Ashenbrenner said the school is fortunate. Its population does not have more health needs. She praises administration for preparing for the worst. The most common ailments are asthma and allergies, and there are EpiPens on hand. We're always prepared, Aschenbrenner said. On to page 2 and local news. A Mason City man was sentenced to 10 years in prison for burglary in Cerro Gordo Gordo District Court on Monday. According to court records, 28-year-old Ryan Daniel Snyder was sentenced after pleading guilty to second-degree burglary, a Class C felony, last month. Snyder was originally charged with first-degree burglary and faced up to 25 years in jail before the plea agreement lessened the charge. The original affidavit states Snyder was discovered inside a residence in the 600 block of 3rd Place Southeast by the owner around 6.30 a.m. October 10, when she returned home. Snyder allegedly assaulted the woman by grabbing her by the throat and squeezing before fleeing the scene. A temporary no-contact order was put into place between Snyder and the woman at that time. It is not clear if Snyder knew the victim. Snyder was convicted of felony domestic assault in 2015. From Decorah, students make the Luther College Dean's List. Three residents of Mason City, Iowa have been named to the 2022 Fall Semester Dean's List at Luther College. Britta Ellsburn, a junior, Nathan Ellsburn, a senior, Anna Floden, a first-year student. According to a press release, Luther College's Fall 2022 Dean's List includes 652 students, 134 first-years, 124 sophomores, 170 juniors, and 224 seniors. To be named to the Dean's List, a student must earn a semester grade point average of 3.5 or better, on a 4.0 scale, and must complete at least 12 hours' credit with 10 hours of conventional grades, A, B, C, or D. Senator Joni Ernst met with Iowa National Guard soldiers Ethan Burkhalter of Creston and Colby Beek of Charles City at Al-Dafra Air Base in the United Arab Emirates, On Tuesday. According to a press release, Ernst, a combat veteran and member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, thanked the Guard members for their service to our state and nation. In national and world news, an article entitled Russian Leader Suspends Pact Russian President Vladimir Putin suspended Moscow's participation in the last remaining nuclear arms control pact with the United States announcing the move Tuesday in a bitter speech in which he made clear he would not change his strategy in the war in Ukraine. Putin emphasized, however, that Russia isn't withdrawing from the pact yet, and hours after his address, the foreign ministry said Moscow would respect the treaty's cap on nuclear weapons. It also said Russia would continue to exchange information about test launches of ballistic missiles per earlier agreements with the United States. In his long-delayed State of the Nation address, Putin cast his country and Ukraine as victims of Western double-dealing and said it was Russia, not Ukraine, fighting for its very existence. We aren't fighting the Ukrainian people, Putin said, ahead of the war's first anniversary on Friday. The Ukrainian people have become hostages of the Kiev regime and its Western masters, which have effectively occupied the country. The speech reiterated a litany of grievances he has frequently offered as justification for the widely condemned military campaign, while vowing no military let-up. Along with limits on the number of nuclear weapons, the 2010 New START envisages broad inspections of nuclear sites. Putin said Russia would stand ready to resume nuclear weapons tests if the U.S. does so, a move that would end a global ban on such tests in, a place, in place since the Cold War era. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken described Moscow's decision to suspend participation in the treaty as really unfortunate and very irresponsible. We'll be watching carefully to see what Russia actually does, he said while visiting Greece. U.S. President Joe Biden, speaking in Poland, did not mention the start suspension, but blasted Putin for the invasion. He pledged continued support for Ukraine, despite hard and bitter days ahead. The EPA tells Railroad to clean the toxic mess from East Palestine, Ohio. Federal environmental regulators on Tuesday took charge of the cleanup from the East Palatine, Ohio train derailment and chemical burn and ordered rail operator Norfolk Southern to foot the bill. The Envi- Environmental Protection Agency told Norfolk Southern to take all available measures to clean up contaminated air and water and said the company would be required to reimburse the federal government for a new program to provide cleaning services for impacted residents and businesses. The EPA warned that if Norfolk Southern failed to comply, the agency would perform the work itself and seek triple damages from the company. Separately, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg announced a package of reforms Tuesday, calling on railroad operators to take immediate steps to improve safety such as accelerating the planned upgrade of tank cars. Democratic governors in 20 states were set to launch a network Tuesday intended to strengthen abortion access in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court decision nixing a woman's constitutional right to end a pregnancy. Organizers, led by California Governor Gavin Newsom, described the Reproductive Freedom Alliance as a way for governors and their staffs to share best practices and affirm abortion rights. Organizers said that includes sharing model statutory language and executive orders protecting abortion access, ways to protect abortion providers from prosecution, strategies to maximize federal financing for reproductive health care, such as birth control, and support for manufacturers of abortion medication and contraceptives. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known as the Mormon Church, and its investment arm, Ensign Peak, were fined $5 million for using shell companies to obscure the size of the portfolio under church control, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission announced on Tuesday. In its first case, about the 1996 federal law credited with helping create the modern internet, the Supreme Court seemed unlikely Tuesday to side with a family wanting to hold Google liable for the death of their daughter in a 2015 terrorist attack. A delegation of U.S. lawmakers on Tuesday met with Taiwan's president who promised to deepen military cooperation between the two sides despite objections from China, which claims the island as its own territory. The National Association of Realtors said Tuesday that existing U.S. home sales fell for a 12th consecutive month in January to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 4 million properties, the slowest annual pace since October 2010, when the housing market was still reeling from the 2008 foreclosure crisis. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Tuesday urged NATO allies, Greece and Turkey, to calm rhetoric as both countries head to national elections in an effort to bolster unity in the transatlantic alliance as Russia's invasion of Ukraine nears its anniversary. A Romanian court agreed Tuesday to extend the detention of social media influencer Andrew Tate, 36, a British U.S. citizen known for misogynistic views, and arrested December 29 on suspicion of organized crime and human trafficking by another 30 days, an official said. You are listening to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette, for February 22, 2023 on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Beverly J. Bowman, 80, formerly of Forest City, died Tuesday, February 21, 2023 at the Westview Care Center in Britt. Leland E. Halfpop, 82, of Goodell, Died Sunday, February 19, 2023, at the Iowa Specialty Hospital, Belmont. And Marjorie Ann hanig Kampman, 94, of Dumont, died Sunday, February 19, 2023, at Franklin Country View Nursing Facility in Hampton. From World News is an article entitled Turkish Teen Filmed quote, Last Moments from Quake Hit Apartment From Turkey, a 17-year-old high school student has captured Turkish hearts after he filmed a farewell message to his loved ones as he was trapped under the rubble of his home during last week's earthquake. Taha Erdem and his family were fast asleep when a 7.8 magnitude quake hit their hometown of Adiyaman in the early hours of February 6. Taha was abruptly woken by violent tremors shaking the four-story apartment building in a blue-collar neighborhood of the central Anatolian city. Within ten seconds, Taha, his mother, father, and younger brother and sister were plunging downward with the building. He found himself alone and trapped under tons of rubble with waves of powerful aftershocks shifting the debris squeezing his space amid the mangled mess of concrete and twisted steel. Taha took out his cell phone and began recording a final goodbye, hoping it would be discovered after his death. "'I think this is the last video I will ever shoot for you,' he said, from the tight space, his phone shaking in his hand as tremors rocked the collapsed building. Showing remarkable resilience and bravery for a teenager, believing he was speaking his last words, He also lists his injuries and speaks of his regrets and the things he hopes to do if he emerges alive. During the video, the screams of other trapped people can be heard. We are still shaking. Death, my friends, comes at a time when one is least expecting it, says Taha before reciting a Muslim prayer in Arabic. There are many things that I regret. May God forgive me of all my sins. If I get out of here alive today, there are many things that I want to do. We are still shaking. Yes, my hand isn't shaking. It's just the earthquake. The teen goes on to recount what he believes his family—that he believes his family—are dead, along with many others in the city, and that he will soon join them. But Taha was destined to be among some of the first saved from the destroyed building. He was pulled from the rubble two hours later by neighbors and taken to an aunt's home ten hours after the quake his parents and siblings were also saved by local residents who dug at the wreck of the building with their bare hands and whatever tools they could find when the associated press spoke to the family on february 16 they were living in a government provided tent along with hundreds of thousands of others who survived the disaster that hit southern turkey and northern syria killing nearly 45,000. This is my home, said Taha's father, mother, Zeliha, 37, as she watched excavation excavators digging up their old life and dumping it into heavy trucks. Boom, 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 the building went down floor by floor on top of us, she recalled, describing how she had kept yelling her son's name while trapped under the debris, in the hope that all five of them would die together as a family. The Erdem's younger children, daughter Seminur nineteen, and nine-year-old son Yigit Sinar, were sleeping in their parents' room when the quake hit. But Taha could not hear his mother's calls through the mass of concrete, nor could she hear her son's cries in the dark, and both believed the other was lying dead in the destroyed building. It was only when Zaliha, her husband Ali, 47, a hospital cleaner, and the other children were taken to her sister's home that they realized Taha had survived. The world was mine at that moment, Zaliha said. I have nothing but I have my kids. From Beijing, China, Hong Kong on Tuesday revoked a visa it granted to a Chinese scientist who set off an ethical debate five years ago with claims that he made the world's first genetically edited babies, pulling it hours after he announced his research plans in the financial hub. He, Genqui shocked the world in 2018 when he announced he had altered the embryos of twin girls with many in the scientific community criticizing his work as unethical. He was convicted by a mainland Chinese court in 2019 of practicing medicine medicine without a license and sentenced to three years in prison with a fine of roughly $445,000. Ten months after his release, he announced in Beijing on Tuesday that he had been granted a Hong Kong visa and was in contact with universities, Research institutes and companies in the financial hub. He said he would consider working in Hong Kong if there were an appropriate opportunity and that he plans to research gene therapy for rare hereditary diseases. My scientific research will comply with the ethics codes and international consensus on scientific research, he said at a brief news conference. But in a statement hours later, in which it didn't refer to he by name, but said it was responding to reports about a visa applicant who was jailed because of illegal medical practices, the Hong Kong government said it had revoked the visa. After the Immigration Department viewed reviewed the application, it suspected that someone had made false statements to get the visa approval. The statement wrote, The director of immigration has declared that the visa is invalid in accordance with the law law enforcement officers would conduct a criminal investigation to follow up the case it added he didn't immediately reply to an associated press request for comment his announcement in 2018 sparked a global debate over the ethics of gene editing in interviews with the associated press he said he had used a tool called CRISPR to try to disable a gene that allows HIV to enter the cells in an attempt to give the babies the ability to resist AIDS. The CRISPR tool has been tested elsewhere in adults to treat diseases, but many in the scientific community criticized his work as medically unnecessary and unethical, uneth- partly because any genetic changes could be passed down to future generations. In convicting him in 2019, the Chinese court in Shenzhen said he had not obtained qualifications as a doctor, had pursued fame and profit, deliberately violated Chinese regulations on scientific research, and crossed an ethical line in both scientific research and medicine. The court also confirmed a third birth, giving his project involved three gene-edited babies born to two women. He was released last April and was invited to speak at the University of Oxford next month, but he wrote on Twitter this month that he was not ready to talk about his experiences over the last three years and decided, decided to cancel the visit. One of the top stories on the sports page relates to high school boys' basketball. Charles city Clear Lake advanced to sub-state semifinals. The Charles City boys basketball team won its first postseason game in style Monday night. The Comets, 16-5 overall, 9-1 in the conference, breezed past the Independence Mustangs, who are 8-14, 4-10 in the conference, by nearly 40 points at home. Charles City picked up a 71-33 victory with stout play on the defensive end of the floor. The Comets held the Mustangs to single digit scoring totals in the second, third, and fourth quarters. Charles City outscored Independence 45 15 in the second and third periods combined. The Mustangs mustered 23 points in the final three quarters of the game. Junior guard Cam Mestas led the charge for Charles City on offense, racking up 23 points without a single made three-pointer. Forward Keenan Wiley and guard Brennan Schmidt also scored in double figures, dropping 14 and 12 points, respectively. Charles City will play Mount Vernon, 15-7 overall, 9-5 in the conference, in a Class 3A sub-state semifinal at home on Thursday night. Tip-off is scheduled for 7 p.m. Clear Lake, 67. Hampton-Dumont-Cal, 35. The Lions started their postseason run with a bang. Clearlake bashed HDC at home, claiming a 32-point victory. The Lions jumped out to a 24-8 lead in the first quarter and never looked back. After it gained a 16-point advantage in the opening frame, Clearlake outscored HDC by at least five points in each of the remaining three quarters. The Lions' offense was balanced against the Bulldogs. Clear Lake had four players score in double figures, and none of them eclipsed the 15-point mark. Sophomores Titan Schmidt and Thomas Meyer, senior Trevon Luyobel, and junior Dylan Litzel dropped, 12, dropped 13, 12, 11, and 10, respectively. The Lions, 21-1 overall and 13-1 in the conference, have now won 13 games in a row. They'll take on the Ballard Bombers, who are 10-12 and 12 overall, 8-8 in the conference, in a 3A sub-state semifinal at home on Thursday at 7 p.m. HDC finished the season with 7-15 overall and 4-10 in the North Central Conference records. The Bulldogs placed sixth in the NCC this season. Southeast Polk sixty four, Mason City fifty eight. The Riverhawks season is over. Mason City six and fourteen overall, two and six in the conference, fell to Southeast Polk, eight and fourteen overall, three and thirteen in a class four A quarterfinal game on the road Monday evening. Mason City trailed by two points at halftime. Then in the third quarter, the Rams threw a punch that the Riverhawks couldn't recover from. The Southeast Polk outscored Mason City 28-12 in the frame. The Riverhawks tried to claw back into the game in the fourth quarter. Mason City outplayed Southeast Polk 24-12 in the final frame of the game. The Riverhawks' counterpunch, however, wasn't enough to stave off elimination. I have to give a big congratulations to Southeast Polk, who played a great game, Mason City head coach Nick Trask wrote in an email to the Globe Gazette, I am super proud of my boys, and I know the city of Mason City should be very proud of their boys' basketball players and how they played the game and fought every second. The Riverhawks' leading scorers were seniors Davion Maxwell and Kale Hobart. Maxwell and Hobart dropped 20 and 12 points respectively. They were the only Riverhawks to score in double figures. Tonight, Davion Maxwell played so well in all aspects of the game, Trask wrote. He led us in scoring, but also was, was rebounding and getting key steals. Senior guard Tate Millsap made some big shots for us. Kale Hobart was a great leader for us and had some tough takes at the hoop. It just really was an all-around great team effort. This is a special team with a lot of seniors, and they will all be greatly missed and their impact on all athletes at MCHS. Mason City finished the season in fifth in the six-team Iowa Alliance Conference North Division standings. The Riverhawks finished ahead of the Fort Dodge Dodgers, one and 20, zero and eight in the conference. Mason City trailed the likes of third place Marshalltown, 12 and 10, overall, 4-4 four and four in the conference. Southeast Polk will take on DeWine Roosevelt, who is 13-9 overall, 4-4 four four in the conference, in a sub-state final game on Friday at 7 p.m. In college women's basketball, Iowa State is looking for a season sweep of Oklahoma State. Iowa State's competed in 20 NCAA tournaments, six Sweet 16s, and two Elite Eights since head coach Bill Fennelly took over the program in 1995. One thing the number 20 Cyclones had never done is avoid getting swept in the regular season by one or more Big 12 foes until now, and that's not a trivial matter as ISU. 17-7 17 and 7 overall, 9 and 5 in the conference, prepare for a tough four-game stretch to close its regular season slate. It's like I told them, it's not going to be something they'd probably put on their job resume down the road, but we've never, never had a team do it and we've had some pretty good teams here, said Fenelly, whose team faces Oklahoma State, 19 and 7 overall, 9 and 5 in the conference at 6:30 p.m. Wednesday in Stillwater. The Cowgirls have been very good lately, winning five straight games, entering Wednesday's matchup with the Cyclones. They're tied with ISU for third place in the Big 12 standings and seek to avoid a sweep of their own. The Cyclones won the first meeting 69-64 in Ames. They're skilled and they're old, said Fennelly of Oklahoma State. And when you're skilled and you're old, you've got a chance to really grow into your team. ISU also conforms to that skilled and experienced model for success and is coming off a week in which it knocked off Texas for the first time in the past eight meetings and also beat Baylor on the road in double overtime. Those two triumphs came on the heels of a three-game skid that essentially ended the Cyclones' hopes of attaining a regular season title. I think... Everyone's energy changed and flipped, and we realized we need to get back on pace of winning, said ISU guard Danae Fritz, the reigning Big 12 freshman of the week. I think we all just came in connected more than ever, realizing we needed to lean on each other. Fennelly said the first Sunday practice back after a humbling 73-6 loss at West Virginia provided a glimpse of how his team would respond. We practiced at two the next afternoon, Fennelly said. We We moved it up because everyone wanted to watch the Super Bowl. Point guard Emily Ryan's a big Chiefs fan, so I had to make sure she could watch Patrick Mahomes play. It wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't long at all, but you could just tell. I've done this long enough that you can just tell when a group is engaged and they show up. They weren't feeling sorry for themselves. It was like, hey got to do what you got to do and they did it the tougher task hinges on keeping up and even though not being swept by any team in big 12 play for the first time won't go on any isu player's job resume as finley noted it nonetheless has a deep impact on the cyclones postseason prospects as well as the team's psyche no team has ever done that here said isu standout guard forward ashley jones who monday was named the conference player of the week for the 13th time in her career so just to be able to do that i mean not many people will know that we did that but we know we did it we can use that for confidence and help motivate us to keep moving forward in iowa high school bowling girls bowling Forest City's Callie Johnson wins the Class 1A state title. Callie Johnson is going out on top. The Forest City senior won the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union Class Class 1A individual state bowling tournament at Maple Lanes in Waterloo on Tuesday afternoon. Johnson dominated the tournament, receiving the top seed in the round of eight. She defeated all of her opponents by more than 25 pins. Feeling great, Johnson told Ethan Petrick of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Way better to go out this way than to lose and be sad about it. Vinton Shellsburg's Kylie Kirshner gave Johnson her closest match, posting a score of 209. Johnson rallied past Kirshner, knocking down 237 pins. In the state semifinal and championship rounds, neither of Johnson's opponents posted a score over 200. Johnson registered games of 222 and 249 in the semis and finals, respectively. I know where I want to throw my ball, Johnson said, and if I put my eye on it, it's going to go where I want it to. Johnson's season average was 10 pins lower this year than it was a year ago, but that didn't shake her confidence heading into the postseason. Forest City head coach Charlie Frasht said Johnston's conviction and commitment to bowling have helped her set helped set her apart from other athletes. When she gets up there, she's got her routine that she does every time, Frosch said. It's confidence in her eyes and her whole body. She's just going to go up there, throw the ball, and it's going to go right in the pocket for a strike. Johnson is now a three-time state qualifier, and her skills caught the eyes of college coaches long before she won a state title this year. She committed to bowl at Coe College in Cedar Rapids on February 7. I want to take it to the next level, Johnson said. "I I know I'm good, and I know I can do it. Johnson finished 16th and 8th in her last two state tournament appearances, respectively. This year, she and Frosch said she came up clutch in big moments to catapult to first place. Over the years, I've had bowlers here where they focus, Frosch said, but when they get down at state and stuff like that, their focus isn't as sharp as it should be because all the people are down there. Of course, this is a different venue than what we've normally been used to. Lately, with the kids I've had coming down here, they get a focus and they go for it. They've got it in their mind that they're going to come out on top. They do the best that they can, and when you're done, if you're on top, that's where they want to be. On the other side of the bracket, Charles City Jr. Claire Gherkin bowled her way to a fourth-place finish. Gherkin started the round of eight as the seventh seed. She earned the spot by one pin after three qualifying rounds. My goal today was to be in the top eight, Gherkin said. That was just my goal, so I didn't know that I made the cut. Then I saw a couple other 600 series go up, and I was a little nervous. Then I got the seventh seed by one pin. Close calls defined Gherkin's appearance in the 1A state tournament. After she earned the seven seed by a pin, Gherkin upset second-seeded Bailey Sechrist of St. Albert Catholic, 204-203. to 203. I wasn't really nervous, Gherkin said, of her first match. I knew that it was just a fresh start for everybody. It didn't really mean anything that I was a seventh seed. Then I ended up beating her by a pin in the tenth frame. Gherkin lost her last two matches of the tournament after she upset Sechrist. She fell to Comanche's Abby Nylon in the semifinals and lost to Louisa Muscatine's Molly Bramble in the third-place match. Despite the struggles she faced in her last two games, Gherkin is proud of the way she performed at the state tournament. She started the year bowling left-handed because she had surgery on her right shoulder. Once her shoulder healed, she started competing right-handed again. I think just overall, in recovery, it's been a lot of my mental part, Gergen said. I had to sit out the whole volleyball season, and it's been hard to watch. But it's really improved my mental game and appreciation for all of it, and just being a good sport, good teammate, all of it. And back to college women's basketball, two Hawkeyes will utilize an extra year. In the midst of chasing a Big Ten championship and preparing for Tuesday's game at seventh-ranked Maryland, two Iowa women's basketball players are looking ahead. Two seniors who start for the sixth-ranked Hawkeyes, guards Kate Martin and Gabby Marshall, announced Monday they will return for an additional year of eligibility next season. Both use the same words to describe their decisions to take advantage of the extra year of eligibility the NCAA granted all student-athletes who were competing at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Martin and Marshall described it as, quote, a no-brainer, close quote. For Martin, the opportunity to play as a sixth-year senior provides her with a chance to complete her master's degree and complete college debt-free. For Marshall, a fifth season on the court with the Hawkeyes simply made sense why not enjoy college as long as you can marshall said to be part of a special team and to get the chance to continue to be in the court with my friends it was an easy decision it was a no-brainer marshall said she reached her decision prior to the start of iowa's 22-5 season while martin arrived at the same conclusion in january i went back and forth on it a bit but in talking things over with my family and reflecting on what my goals are it was a no-brainer martin said when i think about being done with basketball and all the hard work i put in coming back for the sixth year makes sense knowing that her decision impacts younger players on the roster as well as recruiting martin said she wanted to reach a decision before the current season ended martin who registered as a true freshman during the twenty eighteen nineteen season following anterior cruciate ligament surgery currently averages seven points and 4.2 rebounds marshall is averaging 4.5 points and 1.5 steals in addition to typically taking on the challenge of defending the opponent's top score iowa coach lisa Bluder said she was thrilled with the decisions that were announced at her weekly news conference just as she was a year ago when monica shinzano announced she would return for a fifth season. It's always so sad when seniors leave and to have them back for another year. That's incredible, Bluder said. If you have that opportunity to have that year and you want to be back, it's great. The decisions by Martin and Marshall mean that only two starters, Shinzano and forward McKenna Warnock, will be recognized during Iowa's senior day following the Hawkeyes' final regular season home game on Sunday against Big Ten leader Indiana. Bluter said Warnock declined to use the additional year of eligibility she had available, completing her four-year career as a 1,000-point scorer as she moved forward with plans to enter dental school. All will be on the court Tuesday when Iowa visits Maryland. The Hawkeyes defeated the Terrapins 96-82 at Carver-Hawkeye Arena on February 2, and at 14-2 and two in the Big Ten play, need to complete the regular season sweep if they hope to have a chance to play for a piece of the conference title on Sunday against the Hoosiers. We did a pretty good job against their press in the first game, and we will need to do the same, Bluter said. It's a big week for us, and it starts with Maryland. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe-Gazette for February 22, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.